This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Does your family play Cluedo? It's a lot of fun working out who and where a crime took place. Anne Bust also gives us the why in her crime novels. Locked Ward is another ripper of a story. Welcome back, Anne. Well, it's just a delight to be here. Thanks, Jan. (laughs) Well, we have known... Dr. Natalie King, through some of your other books, what are the complex personal issues she has? Uh, well, that, that could take up the whole half hour. <laughs> so, look, this is the fourth in the series. And when I introduce her, she's, well, obviously several years younger, but um, there's a whole lot of immaturity that uh, comes with being a medical student. And You might think that was all, but in fact, she has bipolar disorder Mm. and it's not immaturity. This is her trying to get on top of growing up, working out who you are and having to manage a chronic illness. And no one likes taking meds. Adolescents with with diabetes have similar sort of issues. You know, do I really Mm. have to take the insulin? Of course, the answer is yes. The answer for Natalie is the same. So the bipolar causes her quite a bit of instability. It's not just instability in her own personal life. She's given up her Ducati motorbike. She's given up singing in the band. But she still has her warehouse and talking cockatoo. But we do know from a previous book that she has father issues. What are they? Well, that was the, the one of the, the books in the series sort of really looked at, at some of her early trauma. And I'll just put straight out here, it's not sexual abuse. No. <laughs> this was because I wanted to explore a different sort of trauma. Childhood trauma can be all sorts of variations of a, a theme. But uh, she, she explores that and, and actually gets to finally meet her real father. In We, we see him briefly in Locked Ward. He's not a big part part of her life yet. It's going to take a few more books before she sorts him out. <laughs> but there's another father issue that's a problem. Declan and Liam. Um, oh, Damien and Liam. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, Damien and Liam. De- Declan's her supervisor, which yeah. we don't see much of in this one, though. He gets a little bit of a cameo. So part of her complex personal life is, and it's not entirely her fault, I might add, um, there's a bit of responsibility for one of the men as well. She finds herself pregnant and unfortunately pregnant to the wrong man mm. and she's now trying to balance that with the, the father of the baby wants to be involved which I think is great and a lot of men I think are doing that these mm. days but she's living with the other guy of course, needless to say they don't exactly like each other no. all that much and he's he's got a rather vicious ex-wife and teenage children but now with motherhood She has an issue that is often there for all parents. So what's happening with 11-month-old Sienna? Ah, likes to party at night time. <laughs> I think there's a lot of mothers that can identify, new mums that can identify with this. And of course, it's a particular issue for her because bipolar is triggered by lack of sleep, particularly between that sort of 11pm and, and 7am. So sleep's really important for her. And 11-month-old is, you know, could be sleeping through and, and perhaps... I don't like the word should, but should be. And she's off to sleep school to uh, get that sorted out. So Southside Hospital, the sleep school, it's not just a sleep school though, is it? No, it isn't. And and in Melbourne, we have a a number of of mother-baby units and some of these are more predominantly um, sleep schools. Masada runs one which 
has, you know, goes towards that end. But um, ones like at North Park, for instance, and Mitcham Clinic have mother-baby units that do a little bit of both. So they have mm. the sleep school element where really mums are mentally well, apart from being exhausted. But they also look after women with postnatal depression, postnatal anxiety, and sometimes more severe disorders in that phase and keep them together with their baby. This is where Natalie finds herself. She's in the sleep school. She gets to know all the other patients in there. Well, Phoebe, why is Phoebe in there? Oh, okay. So, well, you've got to read it to find that out. <laughs> well, just quickly. She's, she's, she's anxious. anxious. She's, she's, really she's a anxious. very anxious mum. And, and as a lot of mothers are, really worried about the welfare of their, their children. Sometimes, you know, obsessionality and cleanliness and everything's got to be clean and free of germs and that can become a real anxiety. So Phoebe's got a lot she's dealing with. And Nikki, where uh, Phoebe has a very attentive husband, Nikki doesn't seem to have a partner at all. Yes, or, or not one that's allowed in the unit. In there, yeah. um, and, and sometimes in private units you get Nikki's um, who couldn't pay her own private health insurance mm. but is still living with mum and dad who are paying it. And Angelica, who's got a big business and likes to organise everything, especially the nursing staff, shall we say. Yes, and nursing staff generally don't like being organised in their own wards. And then and there's a Chinese mum who really has no bonding at all with her child. Yeah. And Robbie, a gay partner. And then Jamila, who comes with a security guard. Ooh, mm-hmm. there's the story. And her own sister, Madison, <laughs> I love this. In this week that she's there, she speaks with more times than she has in the previous 10 years. Which which is part of Natalie's arc and she really does kind of get on top of her life or or that's what she's aiming to do in this book at least. Uh, Not entirely, but she's certainly working hard on that. So this is a quote. Eight new mothers at various stages of fragility in a situation where facing reality meant facing our own failures. Now, Anne Bust, you dedicate this book to perinatal mental health staff and say this wouldn't have happened on their watch. In Southside, there's Delani, Maggie, an old school nurse in her 50s, and Parveen. Would you say that Parveen was perhaps a little bit more critical than others? Yeah, look, and, and you know, everyone's different, but with our staff generally in mother-baby units, um, we like to have them very supportive, not taking over or criticising, but supporting women to manage their babies better. And in this situation, as this happens, and look, our shortage of nursing staff means it's happening more, is nursing staff are put into positions they're unfamiliar with and a mother baby you know just because you had your own child Mm. does not make you um you know qualified to be able to help mothers look after theirs it's a whole different area Um, and some of the the nursing staff have midwifery some of them don't have psychiatry some of them have psychiatry without knowing anything about babies and it puts them in an enormously difficult spot but if they don't actually recognize how difficult it is then this kind of can get this dynamic of being fairly or being seen by the women as being criticised. The book starts with the opening line, four days after the murder. But we don't know who was murdered until nearly 70 pages later. 
In crime writing, there is a term plotters and pantsers. Can you explain what that is and what are you? I am definitely a plotter and this book really shows the need for that. Um, And the reason is that 70 pages is, and you know right from the beginning there's a murder, but that 70 pages is in the mother-baby unit so everyone gets to know who is in there. So you can, even if you don't know who's going to be murdered, though you can certainly make a good guess, you can also, you're meeting all of the murder suspects. And the locked ward is, the whole beauty is, it, this is a locked room mystery. There are only a set number of, of suspects um, in this book. And pantsers. It's pantsers is flying by the skin of their, their pants. pants. Yeah. They don't plot, they just write what they feel. And I think if you did this book like that, you'd be rewriting oh, a lot. Um, was this, you know, you really needed it organised as to what, who found out what, when, mm. and, and to give readers a chance of working it out it's there's little you know little bits dotted throughout so with a uh, murder we have homicide detectives what's the connection there uh, of course, Sienna's dad happens to be a homicide <laughs> detective. So not only does she know all of the people in the ward who are the suspects, she also, of course, knows the one of the lead detectives. Ah, this mental illness, and this is what I really liked about it, because the person who is convicted has got a problem. But you, just, you, you explain through Natalie King the difference between psychosis and PTSD. Yeah, look, both you know can really cause a lot of um, trauma for the for the person suffering it. But essentially, psychosis you are out while you're psychotic, you are out of touch with reality. Any, any decisions you make are with a different reality in your head, and and sometimes it would look completely logical the fact that you're smashing a whole lot of things if you thought there were cameras in those things watching you. Yeah. Um, whereas PTSD. You get things like flashbacks and it seems like an hallucination, but they know that these are flashbacks. They know they're not actually happening now. It just can feel like they're happening now. Natalie has been warned by her policeman and father of Sienna, Damien, you're already causing raised eyebrows in places you should. Why stick your neck out when you've got so much to lose? This is an ongoing worry, not just with... Uh, Natalie, but with a lot of women. So what are some of the reasons that babies can be taken away from the mothers? Yeah, and look, it's it's one of the things women fear often, un, you know, with, with no basis um, because they're often really good mums and they're, mm. they're feeling guilty because they're not perfect mothers. But it, it can prevent them getting help. And it's really good mothers get help. And that's kind of my line to the women that I treat. It's uh, unlikely, you know, protective services don't want to remove babies. But obviously where mental illness is distorting your Mm. reality and there's no one else to support you then they have to step in to ensure the safety of the baby yeah child prevention or child hurt and prevention Mm. or sometimes there's a a father who might like to prove mental illness so that he can get uh, custody or maybe even um, so that he can send his wife back to her native land yeah well we've had all of these variations or even maybe a mother who is in detention uh, mm. having yeah. a baby to, to cement her spot here. Look this. You've, you've thrown the whirlwind of reasons through this book. But for Natalie, another quote, she does come back to sing in the band. I forgot motherhood exhaustion, stepmother angst, fears for my relationship. I just lived fully in the moment. Well, wow. you know, this is living in the moment, especially when your sister organises a mother's group of all of these people who 
She's hosting the entire cast of Murder Suspects. And I like the way you link that to Leanne Moriarty's Little Big Lies. Wow. Ah, so finally at the end of this book, we have Dr Natalie King, perhaps finding a new life. And Anne Bused, you're going to introduce us to a new protagonist, Hannah. Mm. She. So hopefully out in October, we don't have an actual date. Out of Blue is the name of the book, co-written with my husband, Graham Simpson. And this is going to be set in a mental health hospital. And Hannah is a first-year registrar. So we are going to see it through oh. her eyes and her three other first-year registrars. Oh. Um, two guys, one woman, a, a diverse cast. We've got uh, an, an Australian, um, African Australian. too much. I want to read the book. <laughs> okay, we'll be ba- I'll be back in October be back. to talk Good. about it. <laughs> when there is a murder in a hospital, the police think they have an open and shut case. But a psychiatrist who was a patient in the hospital and knows everyone involved, including the police, believes the wrong person has been convicted in locked ward by Anne Bust. Ripper of a story. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Jen. Well, from... Bedlam in a locked ward to Bedlam in the studios of 3CR. We're still on our way. But we pick up on certain similar threads in uh, the book I have today. The systemic faults of the Catholic Church and of Australian society, for that matter, are exposed in Catherine John's novel Maggie, where 17-year-old Maggie Reed begins an illicit relationship with a young priest. So, Catherine, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Now, it's 1967 when this novel is set, but yes, it's uh, still very topical. It's still very topical. There's a very short prologue and epilogue in later years, but the bulk of the novel is set in 1967 to 69. And, yes, it's amazing how much hasn't changed. Well, we can. all we need to do is read this morning's editorial in The Age about mm. a certain person being laid to rest. and um, mm-hmm. That's it, true. It evokes all of those memories, and yeah. it stays with you. This is the yeah. other aspect of this yeah. novel where there are certain uh, ramifications exactly. that stay with you for a long time. So let's find out about Maggie. She's a talented young lady, but there are difficulties on the home front. And I'm interested in exploring some of this background before we get on to the main story. She has an alcoholic father. Yes, she does. And uh, I should make it clear this is a literary novel. So rather than deal with issues, I'm I'm putting inverted commas in the air air quotes, although they are certainly um, relevant to the novel, I, I wanted to write something that had some complexity and some nuance in terms of the characters and the situations they find themselves in. Mm. So Maggie's father is a violent alcoholic, or relevant to that rather. He has clearly PTSD from his war experience in World War Two. He's a very sensitive man and, and a talented man who, who's been thwarted in his ambitions. And so there's... There's no excuse for the violence, but he's a, he's, he's a whole person. There's an accounting for it, but what it speaks to is a failure in society to address the needs and concerns. We've still got the same problem today with uh, exactly. veterans exactly. Uh, from other war fronts, mm. but there was less awareness of it back then. Mm. But then the children have to try and protect their mother, for uh, which is another problem, and the police... What do they do? Well, the police actually, in it, back 
then I know, because I actually grew up in an alcoholic home with violence myself, and I know that um, the police would say, we don't interfere in domestic arguments. There was absolutely no protection from the priest, from the police. That was a Freudian slip, or from the priests, because Maggie, the Catholic Church, figures largely in the novel, and the priests would not have let Maggie's mother get a divorce or even leave her husband. She was in a very close-knit, small Catholic community. Um, so there was absolutely no, no support for the mother or the father, and therefore for the children. And so the violence is perpetuated because there's no outlook and there's no awareness or understanding. And the rules of the club prevent one from actually taking definitive action. Uh, absolutely. It was a shameful thing back then, and I'm sure people still feel that today mm. in, in some situations. The other interesting thing about that uh, relationship between the mother and father there it crossed the Catholic-Protestant divide, which was not done in it those days. It was not done. They were very distinct camps in the town that I grew up in originally, but I've lived in Melbourne most of my life, so I can't really go into that very much. But yes, he was a Protestant, and the only way he could marry Maggie's mother is to become a convert, which meant he had to study and, and get baptised. And, and but, but after that, as many men or women did in that situation, he just doesn't get involved in the church at all. Maggie meets Father Nile or Lloyd. And look, from the outset, there's a patriarchal imbalance. The first encounter, Father Nile has taken over Sister Teresa's literature class. She can't say no. No, the priest has absolute authority. I don't know about now, and but I suspect not a lot has changed in some respects. But um, back then, the priest had unquestionable authority over everyone. Um, he was bigger than the mayor or whoever. So a very powerful figure and full of prestige and consequently for, for ones like Lloyd, entitlement as well. Yeah. And Lloyd thinks he's forward-thinking, shall we say? Well, he does, yes. We're talking about the era of Vatican II, um, the big changes brought about in, in the church in that, in that time. And he's one of emerging group of radical priests. And there were many who were genuinely interested in reforming outdated practices and inhumane practices in the church. But Lloyd, I think, tends more to use that as a way to not ingratiate himself, but, but, but in, in, terms, in, in a way that gives him an, an, an even better entry into the lives of his parishioners because he can be seen to be progressive and having their interests at heart. And I think that's a part of his personality and character, I think. Well, he's a young man wanting to be modern, contemporary, identify, he's, he's trying to lead a, a youth group to make things more relevant exactly. for the yeah. students and he comes across the students. Mm. But in many ways, we could well call some of his well, some of his conduct, grooming. Today, the catcher in the rye here, Maggie, would you like to read this? Driving lessons, music rehearsals. Today we would call it grooming. In, in, the, in the 60s when I grew up, it wasn't a term that was used. It wasn't even a concept that was ever talked about. But nowadays, certainly, that's what it is, yes. I mean, that's what it's called. That's what it was and that's what it's called. And also, kids in school are impressionable. Absolutely. Maggie particularly so because of her background. Well, again, because of her background, because of that 
uh, family family difficulties. Mm. She's wanting to identify with a, an older male figure uh, and those sorts of things. That's right. And she's craving love and intimacy, basically, when, when she meets Lloyd. Mm. Mm. What the novel then starts to develop is a picture of what the priests were doing because it wasn't mm. just Father Lloyd. No. <laughs> and what we find is a network of priests covering for exactly. each other. Without giving too much away, I should say that this meeting with the priest and the, and the subsequent relationship, which causes her to live a, a kind of a secretive double life and, and feel very much in conflict, it develops in ways that affect her whole life and, and the course of her life. And I, I don't want to give any spoilers out and say how that happens, but the, the, the question of cover-ups by the church is definitely a yeah. motif. But the, the priests are having a nod and a wink between themselves. Exactly. Which that, speaks to the fact that this was an ongoing problem. It, it was endemic. And yeah, mm. right through. Mm. But here we go. Um, the priests have uh, people they can approach, strategies. What were they doing? Well, they were protecting themselves. And one of the reasons that I found it interesting to write a novel about a character like Maggie, there are lots of instances of, of child sexual abuse, and that's fortunately been uncovered and is being dealt with probably not as well as it should be. But in Maggie's case, she was 17, so technically she was a child. In the eyes of the church, I think she certainly was anyway. You know, she couldn't drive till she was 18. She couldn't vote. And I mean, she was still in school. And I actually have known of uh, one person uh, in Maggie's situation, although she was older, but a couple of others who were who were involved with priests as schoolgirls with dire consequences, as Maggie's are, and you'll have to read it, listen to find, to out. find out what those are. But, um, yes, the... But Jack and Vince are going to put their heads together. They'll think of something. That's right. And this included things even to the extent of abortion, in some cases. In some cases, that was definitely the case. Um, it was quite common back then. It's become known now for priests to get women or girls pregnant. In the case of women, it's actually called adult boundary violation. And I think that's not just in the church, but maybe in other places where there are power imbalances, like a doctor patient or, you know, a psychiatrist patient. But they but, were moving people into state and, and yes, such like, or yes. moving them into servitude. Yes, they had huge amount of power, and Maggie finds herself in the grip of, of that power and the lack of control. And the book is partly about her about her efforts to maintain some kind of control over her life after the consequences of the affair with the priest. And there's this systemic problem within the Catholic Church and the priests are morally corrupt. But not to uh, excuse the priests, but if they were wanting dispensation to leave and to marry, there was a problem for the priests. Absolutely. Back then, I don't know about now, but back then um, that was a very difficult thing to, to get. But a, a lot of them, they had their cake and they ate it too because they managed to have their sexual relationships and to stay in the priesthood. And there was, as you said, the big cover-up and protection of the priests who were involved in that kind of 
activity. But if a, if a priest wanted to leave the church, get married, he couldn't get married in the church in those days. Not without a dispensation. Yeah. And so it's a bit like the way sects operate. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't follow the rules of the club, we're going to oh, absolutely. exclude you mm. and banish you, mm. which is, is yep. a, a form of violence in its own It is, way. and, and um, I hope that I have conveyed some complexity in the priest situation as well because it would have been very difficult to leave. Celibacy was compulsory, so they were in a very unnatural kind of situation. And they themselves were subject to a huge amount of authority, even though they had the authority over the parishioners, they themselves were subject to authority. And you could say in in some ways um, not to excuse anything, as in the case of Maggie's father, but there were circumstances that contributed to the kinds of... Social circumstances uh, around ...of um, unacceptable behaviour that, that they engaged in. You do provide a contrast now with Maggie's friend Delia... Yes. Uh, ..which tops and tails yes. the novel. And Delia yeah. is now preparing to give a, a lecture, international uh, yes. doctor, etc. Um, opportunities, the, the implications then for these girls mm. and women in general... Mm. Uh, given the situations they find themselves in. Exactly. Um, Maggie finds herself in a situation, she is very ambitious and she has ability and she works very hard and her big dream is to win a scholarship to university as she did to win, as she won a scholarship to um, boarding school. But because of her vulnerability with her background and then the the added ingredient of the um, her involvement with the priest, her opportunities in life have become very different in spite of her dreams and, and aspirations from Delia's, who does not have that kind of background, who isn't involved with an older man in a, in a position of power. And the stigma stays with you? The stigma does, yes. I myself, and I won't go into any details, but I have experienced sexual assault and I was able to convey through that experience, as well as what I know of others, the kind of shame and self-blame that's involved in that, and it probably still is. Well, if the listener wants to find out what happened to me or happens to Maggie... Read the book. Read the book. <laughs> uh, the author is Catherine Johns. The book is simply entitled Maggie, and it's a Hachette release. So, Catherine, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you, David. Lovely to talk to you. And I had been talking with Anne Bused, who wrote Locked... Ward, which is published by text. So thank you, Anne. Thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jan. We'll see you next week. <laughs> we will indeed. Bye for now. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.